The sports world has been greening itself for most of the century, but despite these efforts, most fans have no idea. That changes now. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. Hosted by Lou Blaustein, Green Sports Pod highlights the successes, challenges, and opportunities to green the games we love to watch and play, and give you the chance to hear from the athletes who are taking positive environmental actions. Learn more and subscribe to the show today at greensportsblog.com. Welcome to Green Sports Pod. I'm your host, Lou Blaustein, and today we have with us someone in the green sports world who almost defies categorization. She's an athlete, an adventurer, an ecopreneur, a campaigner, plant-based advocate, and more, all in one person. And that doesn't even do her justice. And her surname is just perfect for what she's about. I am so happy to have with us today on the pod, Kate Strong, eco-athletes champion, ecopreneur, athlete, and much more. Kate, welcome to Green Sports Pod. Thank you so much, Lou. It's an absolute delight. I love speaking with you, and it's great to be on the podcast. Amen. Let's get started, because per the intro, you have a lot going on, and I think the listeners will be in rapt attention to hear your story. So let's get to it. Talk a little bit about your athletic history and how you got into being a triathlete, adventurer, etc. Yeah. So I suppose in school, I was always into sports, but never really took it competitively. I was called up to play for Wales, where I'm from, in lacrosse. I was junior national champion as well in javelin. But whenever it got a bit pointy and a bit serious, I walked away because to me, sport should always be fun rather than serious. And I went to uni, the usual path. I've got a double master's in engineering, so I actually became an aerospace engineer for a time. And it was only after quite a toxic relationship breakdown that I decided to look at sports as part of my healing journey. So for me, sport can be seen as quite selfish, but in fact, putting us first and foremost, making sure we're living our most healthy and rich life is the greatest thing we can give as a gift to others. So I selfishly chose to do triathlon because I'd always had a dream to be this Ironman triathlete, but always had an excuse of work, not enough time, looking after my partner, et cetera, et cetera. And so that's what drove me to do triathlon. And as you know, I couldn't run a mile at the beginning. I struggled with asthma, but I'd wake up every morning at 4 a.m. and go for a run. I used to work seven days a week during that time in hospitality. And within 14 months, I was crowned age group world champion in long distance triathlon. So (laughs) I put the hard hours in, a lot of pain and graft, but it was rewarded very, very quickly. From not being able to run a mile to, in what seems like a nanosecond, becoming an age group champion in triathlon, how do you process that? Honestly, I don't think I had time to process it. As I said, I was still reeling from that relationship breakdown. And I had so much else in my life going on. I think I sort of sneaked in the world championships without even the world realizing what was happening till I was on the podium. So it took us all by surprise. But straight off after that, I don't think I'd put in enough support for myself emotionally. So physically, I was in peak form. Mentally, maybe I could have been a bit stronger. But emotionally, I was still quite hurt and raveling what had happened to me. The following couple of years, I think I did struggle a lot with my mental health. 
And when I couldn't train anymore because I sustained an injury and I couldn't run, yeah, I just collapsed like emotionally. And for weeks, I couldn't leave my house. So I moved away from Australia, where I was currently living, and back to Britain, where I'm originally from. And I really struggled. I'd lost my friend circle. I'd lost my identity as a triathlete. And I went to some really dark places. After about four weeks of not leaving the house, I got a job as a toilet cleaner in a local cafe at zero hour contract and slowly building myself up from one of the lowest perceived jobs. From the bottom, literally and figuratively. Yeah. I mean, whenever I go to a cafe, I can promise you I look at our cleaners in a whole different light because what I was greeted with was not respect in short. But it gave me confidence because being a world champion isn't a title. It isn't a medal around our neck. It's who we are in every second of every day. And it got me thinking how else I could see sport. Sport is so momentarily. The win is so fleeting. It doesn't sustain us in life for the athlete or society. So I thought, well, is there a way I could use sport as a vehicle for good? And coming back to what you said, I think that's what sparked me. The injury sparked me in thinking how else I could do sport. So I noticed that there's a lot more men and male athletes in the media over women. It's improved in recent years, but back then it it wasn't so. So I decided to attempt a world record that a male held, but no female. And that was in static cycling. So the bicycle that don't move when you're in the gym. So I cycled for 24 hours and I set a new world's first record for a woman, the furthest distance covered, to talk about equality in sports. So instead of just talking about the negative, I was able to bring a positive story and equalize the playing field. This is a Guinness world record that was in the book. When was this and about how old were you at the time? Well, I've done three. Furthest distance in one, 12 and 24 hours on a static bike. I originally attempted them in 2018 and failed. So I attempted them and succeeded in 2021. And I was the beautiful age of 42 at the time. First of all, for endurance sports, that age group, in some sense, you're in your prime there. And what was that like for 24 hours on a bike going nowhere fast? Well, just sit on any seat for 24 hours and it gets a little uncomfortable. Add a fair few rotations of your legs in between. There's quite a lot of chafing that goes on. Ouch. <laughs> to put it mildly. Yeah, after eight hours, it was more of a mind game. If I ever thought about my body, I would have stopped because my shoulders were aching, my back was seizing. Obviously, my crotch, I was getting glued together, Lou, from what was happening down there because of the chafing. So yeah, it was just mindset. Can I cope for the next five minutes, 10 minutes? times that by 12 hours. And that's what got me through to the end. Because you describe yourself as an adventurer, I would count this as a primo example of an adventure. Now, you are also an adventurer into climate activism, and then melding that into sport, melding the two together. How did your climate game, so to speak, get going? Where did that come from? My first degree was environmental engineering, and I started that in the 90s. So the nature and our connection has been a very strong part of my life, albeit I'm an engineer and love my data and my science. I'm a little bit woo-woo too. 
my world records I did under a full moon on the outside on top of a mountain in Bristol. So I do a nod to the female and the divine mother nature as well. Again, after the competition with myself, because no longer was I competing with others in triathlon, I was now competing with myself. It still wasn't connecting. So is there a way that an elite athlete, someone who lives on the pointy edge of life like me, is able to connect communities? Because looking at the climate crisis, we're all struggling together. We're all in this together. So it's fine. I may have my solar panels and I have my electric car. But what about my neighbours? What about the village down the road? We forget that if we're all not bringing everyone up and elevating, we're going to sink. So I really wanted to find a way to use my cycling as a means of connecting and bringing the story to the people out there doing amazing things. And that's kind of what the climate cycle, which is, as you know, what I completed earlier this year, was all about, bringing the message to them so that communities had the limelight on their stories. And I was just a piece of string connecting them. And that's such a great segue, Kate, into maybe, and I'll let Kate answer this question if it's her biggest adventure to date. The climate cycle was a 3,000 mile, I believe, bike ride around the perimeter of the mainland British Isle this summer over three months on a bamboo bike that Kate built herself. And so, Kate, how did you conceive of this adventure? And then we'll talk about the climate aspects of it on the other side. Well, I think every great adventure and every great decision is done on a whim. So I didn't put much thought into it. And if I had, I probably wouldn't have done it. And I think that stands for most people when they do something a bit wacky. So I just drew a circle around Britain and just thought, I'll cycle that. It looks quite easy. It's only 3,000 miles. Divide that by 90 days, it's 33 miles a day. As a cyclist, that seemed very reasonable. I was doing more than that every day for commuting. I mean, I forgot that I'd be carrying half my body weight in kits. And I forgot that I'd be running on fatigue because I'd have to camp every single night in a different location. And I forgot that I get lost quite a lot of my time. And actually, I added up over 10% extra in the routes because I get lost 10% of my life. We now have a mathematical number. And also the altitude. I worked out, I climbed the equivalent of five Everests in altitude. Holy cow. All of that was naively ignored at the very beginning. And I just randomly picked, obviously, like the number three, I picked 30 communities to visit, schools to talk at and get inspired by their projects. And I visited grassroots initiatives like women planting fruit trees outside supermarkets so we don't have to buy apples. We understand what season is and we remove the need for plastic because you just pick up an apple and you put it in your car or bag. But also I visited universities to talk about how we can remove microplastics from our waterways using plant collagen from leaves. So I tried to cover as diverse the topics as possible to inspire and engage us individually, societally, but also governmentally, because I think the solutions are out there. We just haven't told them about them. So yeah, I just, on a whim, created this climate cycle and naively packed my bags, which were also made out of truck tarp, you know, the curtains on the back of lorries. We cut them up, sewed them up. They're waterproof. And so that was carrying my kit. I just went out, 90 days later, came back, done. You make it just sound like a jaunt in the park. Yes. Okay. I had to sleep in tents and whatever, but 
if you could highlight two examples of some of your climate interactions along the way for our listeners to get a sense of who you were talking with, listening to, and what those interactions were like. Yeah, great question. So opens up the entire route for people to join me. And people were attracted to me for the cycle. So I met very much cyclists, as in they buy new kits every year. They have five to 50 bicycles, huge consumers. So very much in the cycling world, which is all about how you look. Everything has to match. And also the climate activists, if you want. The people who are doing their bit use cycling as a method of transport and a way of reducing their carbon footprint. So I was bringing the two worlds of very big extremes together. And the conversations were immensely diverse. One couple that joined me for a bike ride, but also housed me for a few days, live in a small holding, which means they have their own polytunnel. They grow all their fruits and vegetables and all the food they eat every year. They have animals as well, sheep and pigs, which they eat, and they don't buy anything from any shop. As a vegan, obviously, most of it is not my lifestyle, but they write in the sense that they have a much less footprint than I do if we look at the carbon and the travel cost of their food. But I don't have the privilege of the lands, and I don't have the privilege of time as well because they take upwards of six hours a day to grow their food and nurture for their animals. So it was very intriguing to learn about we can't all live a purist life. It's about finding what works for each of us. So I was learning from them about being maybe less militant in my vegan outlook for others. And they were hopefully learning to be more sympathetic to people making the right decisions for what we find in our supermarkets. And the more I realized speaking to this couple in particular is we live in a world of gray. There is very little black and white. There is not much right and very much, there's not much wrong at all. We need to find the right path for each of us. A hundred percent and move towards what we see as a more virtuous path, because it will always be on a path. We're never getting to some Shangri-La end. I mean, maybe in the 3,000 mile cycle, you did get to an end when you got back to London in September. When you reflect back on it, what inspired you? What jazzed you coming out of it? And then on the flip side, what made you feel like, oh man, we are in a lot of trouble? If it's okay, I'll answer the down question first, so we end on a high. Sure, absolutely. There were two things that really got me and still get me. So Britain, as you know, is quite a vanilla country for extremes in weather and impact. We don't have the hurricanes that you do. We don't have the flash floods or the fires of Australia. We're pretty average. We should have quite a temperate climate. On my cycle, the temperatures didn't reach last year's extreme of over 40 degrees centigrade, but I was burnt so badly I was blistering. And then two weeks later, we had the heaviest rainfall on record for July. So I did not see a day without rain. And I was soaked through to my skin where the year before we were hitting extreme temperatures and people were passing out from the temperatures. So the biggest concern I have is we are seeing 100-year floods, 100-year hot heat rises, 100-year cold snaps every other year in every month. We're missing the point that this should not be a normality of having reaching the targets or the, reaching the extremes. I'm going to generalize. Majority of people don't actually see that as an urgency. 
because it doesn't impact us so badly. We're not losing houses yet. We're not losing food resources yet, but it's a sign of what's to come. So I was really, really concerned about the extreme weathers that I personally experienced and felt because I couldn't not cycle. I had to cycle through the heat and I had to cycle through the rain and I had to cycle through the wind, 50 mile an hour headwinds, not joyous. I just had to keep pushing through it. And normally I'd just be sitting inside and not seeing it, but feeling it really, really drilled home that this is real and it's going to get worse. Another thing that shocks me is at the beginning when I'm cycling, we think about Britain and the countryside, isn't it beautiful with the rolling green hillsides? Oh, yes. We get all the television shows over here with all these people. Oh, yes. Look at this. Cloves and garlic. And yes, incredible. And it's beautiful. It is. But then you look, there's just one color green and there's just one type of grass. There's a deathly silence of how few insects we have. I had more punctures than bleep that insects fly in my mouth. That is not the right number. So this beautiful green rolling countryside suddenly started to morph into quite a toxic place for me to look into, where all I saw was monolithic intensive agriculture. It's again a concern, like, where's the diversity of green? Why don't we have clover and wildflowers and the occasional leave and fall on the floor for insects to take salvage in? You know, we want this clinical, green, perfect look, which is unfortunately squeezing out the diversity of life we need for our own wealth of life as well. So I got a little bit dark on that because I couldn't take a photo without going, look at the green guys, it's only one, and realise I'm getting a little bit ranty and slash negative, but I did not see it beforehand. Plus 90 days on a bike in wind, rain, if you don't get ranty, you got something going on. Yeah. And to talk about the flip side, I'm a middle-aged white woman. I was naively cycling around Britain for 90 days without much of an accommodation or food plan. And every single night, almost every single night, there was the occasional hotel, but majoritatively strangers opened up their house. They gave me a spare bed. They gave me a floor to sleep on. They gave me a place in their garden to camp if they didn't have a spare room. They cooked me food. They washed my clothes. They allowed me to have warm shower in their house because they appreciated just that simple comfort would add so much joy in my heart. I met only the generosity of humanity and I love strangers. I think the othering of the fear of the unknown needs to be stopped. 99% of humanity and then some are just lovely people wanting to help if they're given half a chance. I've never made more deeper friends in such a short space of time with, again, as I said, a diversity of old, young cyclists, non-cyclists, didn't matter their backgrounds. They wanted to help me because they saw a girl in need and they stepped up and they opened their house for me. That is beautiful. Put that into a macro context. And this is something that world leaders should experience. Actually, maybe they might not be in good enough shape to ride a bike around the country, but maybe they could start and then we'd be better off. That's incredible. Thank you for doing this, actually, because your learnings shared with us will hopefully make us take on our own challenges and put ourselves out there in ways that can have a positive impact. And with that said, are you 
done with adventuring or challenges, or I have a feeling probably not. So with that probably not, what's next? So I wish I could say I'm done. I promised myself after that cycle I would. I'm almost 45. I'm halfway to 90. I could really do without pushing my body through that. Before I answer the what's next about adventuring, off the back of the cycle, because I wanted to break the monotony of having to do adventures in order to raise awareness, blah, blah, blah. I have developed a school sustainability programme that I'm launching with the Welsh Government in every single school in Wales across the curriculum to complement math and geography and PE and fashion designing or whatever else the children are studying to complement it and understand how sustainability is intrinsic in the future roles. So that is being launched off the back of the climate cycle and the connections I've made. That's fantastic. And is there a name for that program? Sorting out the name at the moment. So I'm going to keep it undercover, but you'll be the first to know, I promise you. All right. And then we'll put it on the blog. So then listeners just read future blog posts for a update from Kate and you'll get the name. Yeah, perfect. But yeah, so what's next? 2024 is going to be quite an easy one, I say. And I said that about climate cycle. I'm just walking and it's changed since we talked last time. I know you don't believe me. So I'm just walking the length of the River Taff with an expert and leading professor in the impact of plastics in our water courses and the impact on animals and their health. So we've decided to walk the river together. I'm bringing the legs and he's bringing the brains, but we're going to have a conversation about the importance of our river, the different roles it's playing, because we're going to pass through residential, industrial areas, and we're going to end up in Cardiff and we're going to do a mass beach cleanup in Cardiff Bay on World Ocean Day, which is the 8th of June, 2024. And how long is the River Taff? And is that only in Wales? It's an exclusively Welsh river. It's very famous for Welsh people because it's built around the Industrial Revolution. It transported a lot of our coal, which we're famous for. So again, there's a beautiful symmetry in where we are now and also honouring the communities that built Wales to the country it is. It's around 5-0 miles. So a reasonable walk. We're not doing it in a day. We'll take a week. It's more about the knowledge, and his name is Namir. He's also a successful asylum seeker into our country, so we're going to talk about the social impact of climate for different communities globally as well. So I'm really looking forward to it, and I'm very grateful that he's going to bring a depth to this conversation that I could never touch. Wow, I wish there would be some kind of live stream, or maybe you guys could do something after that recaps it all and would love to be read into that. Wow, yeah. I knew there would be a what's next. There was another little what's next after this. Okay, come on now, Kate, don't hold back. Because I do like pushing myself physically. I find if I set a physical goal, all the best of my other areas of life just have to step up. So I've decided in 2025, swim the River Wye, which runs the border of England and Wales. It's very much in our news at the moment because the water quality has dramatically dropped because of new legislation in the government. So there may be areas I can't swim for my health reasons, but I think that's just as important. Again, I have river experts to talk about what's happening to our river, but that's 250 kilometers. Whoa, so that's going to be more than a few days. I don't know how long that's going to take. I've only swum 14 kilometers in total in my life before, which is about nine miles in a day. It wiped me out. So I'm doing... 15 times that. So I don't know. Somehow, I don't doubt that you'll do it. 
And I think hopefully the climate cycle will have gotten you to plan this one out more in advance so that you will kick its butt. Let's just say it that way. Yeah, but it's with the current as well. So at least I have no uphills to cycle or swim. Oh, wow. I can just sort of float with the river down. (laughs) So for all of you out there, if you want to do a long swim memo from Kate, make sure you're with the current. Yeah. But again, I have no idea. I don't care about the how, because the how will always work itself out if there's a strong enough why, ironically, because I'm swimming the river why. That is so brilliant right there. I have found my why. It's the river why. Exactly. (laughs) So in the time we have left, I want to pivot back to what you're doing off the adventure trail, although we can say it's an adventure. And this is the ecopreneurial part of Kate's portfolio. And she works with a startup in the climate gamification technology space. And yes, there is such a thing. And the company is called Climate Games. And one more bit of intro. Many of you know I'm the founder of Eco Athletes, nonprofit that inspires and coaches athletes to lead climate action. Kate, thankfully, is one of our Eco Athletes champions. And Eco Athletes and Climate Games are working together. So first, just give a little bit about Climate Games and your involvement in it. And then we'll come back to the eco-athletes part after that. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? That our worlds are always squeezing together and working on this project as well. So I love how the world is shrinking when we work together. But it was a no-brainer for me to join Climate Games because it brings the world of sport and sustainability together and levels the playing fields. Because I think a lot of times in sports, what I felt when I was doing triathlon, people couldn't train with me because I was a world champion and it actually stigmatized it and turned people off trying. And the same is happening in sustainability. There are experts out there with quite a lot of data-driven information. And it's a barrier for us to get involved on a grassroots level. Brick Games basically translates any exercise that we do, be it going to the gym, swimming, cycling, rowing, or walking, or running, into that planetary action. So trees can be planted, plastic removed from the ocean, or carbon or GHG sequestered as well. And what I'm really loving is that change behavior piece. So when people in a company take part in a corporate event, like a walk to work scheme, it's entry level. It creates camaraderie. I'm going to ask my local friends, like, are you still walking? How can I support you? Because we get points for that. But it's also adding that element of curiosity as in, well, why is it five trees, not 10? Or why is it seven kilograms of carbon, not three? And the company is able to educate them in their carbon goals or their climate goals or their impacts. So some companies are now saying, well, this is the amount of paper we use in our printing machines. So you now have to walk further to plant the trees that we've cut down for your paper. Or you can print less and you can walk less. So it's changing the behavior and reducing the impact as well as replacing and repairing the damage being created in the first instance. Or you could exercise more, walk more, and print less. So then it's a win-win on both sides. That's the ultimate, but I don't want them to know that. (laughs) Well, I'm just saying, win-wins in the climate game, pun intended, are always good. So eco-athletes partnered with climate games earlier in 2023, 
on what became, I would say to date, our most successful event, which is the Eco Athletes Collegiate Cup, a competition amongst our student athlete Eco Athletes champions on 14 campuses to get their friends, their fellow student athletes, their family members, anybody they knew to sign up for their school on the Climate Games app and then start exercising to pull out carbon from the atmosphere. And Kate really made that happen. Kate, from your perspective, how did you see the Collegiate Cup from the Climate Games side of things? It was actually an example of how the platform needs to be used, how climate games can be used as a force for good by creating teams and that the competitive elements of who can walk more or run faster or enroll more of their friends. It got more people in conversation around their personal health and fitness, as well as their mental health, but also around the environmental impact. I know that you and I ran workshops about why we chose certain projects and funded the methane as well as peatland restoration. And athletes, they had no idea, but suddenly they were like, oh my gosh, I could do more and I'm going to look into it and how I can do this in my own community rather than just relying on these projects. So it was a spiral. It was an amazing snowball to see how more and more athletes were asking more intelligent questions to their own colleges as well. It's a beautiful way of how competitive spirit can work towards the common goal. And it also showed, from my perspective, that the student athletes who are eco-athletes champions are so committed to climate action, what we call the climate comeback, that some of them went outside of their comfort zones to get people that they knew to do this. And their competitive nature is kicked in because they're athletes. And Clemson University won it thanks to the amazing efforts of one rower, Anna Klenke. And P.S., she then used her experience in winning the Collegiate Cup for Clemson to apply for an ESPN slash Billie Jean King Youth Leadership Award grant. And she was one of 10 winners nationwide amongst hundreds who applied on the strength of the Collegiate Cup. So I thank Kate and Climate Games for bringing this to us as we look to make it even bigger and better in 2024 for Collegiate Cup 2. And I'll just have you know, Kate, that Anna at Clemson is already talking trash and saying they're going to win again. Good on her. I mean, I'm not taking part because I'm not obviously a Collegiate Cup potential. But yeah, that's what we want, though. We want a bit of gamification and competitiveness and, oh no, more carbon has been removed and sequestered from our environment. Who's going to complain about that? Yeah. And not only that, I mean, think of the other wins. Let's say, because you want to have your team do well in the Collegiate Cup, I'm going to walk to that class. I'm going to ride my bike to church or whatever it might be instead of drive. So even though that actual carbon saved from you literally not driving is not counted into the game. That's another win. Yeah. Plus, you're getting in better shape. This is a win, 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 win. There are lots of wins. So we'll be back to you guys later. We want as many of you listeners to take part in Eco Athletes Collegiate Cup. 
Even if you didn't go to one of the schools who are competing in the game, you can just sign up for one team that you root for, or I like this name, or however. Kate, I just want to thank you for being on the pod, for living this adventurous life that is putting climate first, and for making us better. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lou. That means a lot. All right. Well, we will be following Kate on her myriad of adventures and working with her on the Collegiate Cup. And you all will be hearing about all of this and more. Thank you all for listening to this episode of Green Sports Pod. We will be back to you with another episode in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Green Sports Pod, hosted by Lou Blaustein. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And head on over to greensportsblog.com, the source for news and commentary at the intersection of green and sports. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Green Sports Pod.